Welcome everyone to our last launch AMA of the year. As usual, I'm Sam here, your host today. I'm joined by, I guess, his longtime alumni, Kevin Kleiman of of Humi. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Sam. Pleasure to be here. This is this is super exciting for us because I, I I mean like. You're one of the OGs that I hadn't met. Like I've been at launch for a very long time, but I'm glad we I'm glad we could connect um, now. But um, before we kind of just get rolling, and I'm really eager to get rolling because we have a lot to talk about here. Just want to go over some housekeeping items as we're just chatting here. If you're listening to this live, make sure um, you're pumping in questions for Kevin. I'll kind of monitor the chat and the Q and A, and, and Samson will do that as well behind the scenes. Uh, but we're we're anything and everything goes. I, I checked with Kevin off offline and uh we'll see how many questions we get through no tmz stuff though um but yeah like why don't you just go ahead and get get us started like what like i always love to do like the the superhero origin story like how did you get involved with startups like you have a super interesting background um which i'm sure we'll get into but uh why don't you just i'll just let you introduce yourself a little bit sure um like that you said super interesting because you could also describe it as weird feels very weird (laughs) Uh, so I don't know. I've always kind of had the entrepreneurial itch and bug <laughs> to like lemonade stands as a kid, a whole bunch of like weird hustles, um, through high school first, like real business in high school. Um, but ended up in dental school and graduating and being a licensed dentist pre doing two, uh, technology startups. And, um, I think I've just always had an interest in, in building companies without like knowing I wanted to. And so I've, I've t- it, fe- it feels like a very natural path to where I am right now. But I would say that like my family origins pushed me in a certain direction, which like it took me a while to fight the current <laughs> to do the thing that I think like I really love and was supposed to do. But, uh, you know, I come from a family where my mom's a dentist and my dad's a doctor. So that kind of party line was pick one of these. If you want to be happy in life. <laughs> It's clearly not true, <laughs> um, but uh, that's kind of what led me. Well, that it's been my path towards entrepreneurship. I went to undergrad, continued like the high, uh, side hustle thing, got into dental school, um, got really into web-based businesses, uh, built a couple fully on my own. Um, and when I graduated as a dentist, I moved back to Toronto, worked part-time for my mom in her practice, paying down debt and accruing some sort of margin of safety to go take more risk, all the while like building stuff on the side. And um, as soon as I had enough conviction, had enough like of a cushion to like take more risk, um, I actually moved out to Vancouver and started working on my first startup out of launch academy. Uh, we raised uh, a seed round. There we go. It's funny. <laughs> Oh, she's popping up. Raised a seed round. Um, we got to some like interesting scale. So my first business, which is effectively what Clubhouse is today, but very early on in the like launch of the mobile app store. We grew to a couple million like monthly active listeners, some like really weird YouTubers and social media people who are using the app. Ultimately, those types of companies are very much lottery tickets. And I've seen a lot of first-time entrepreneurs go for the very big, potentially sexy thing, but ones where the outcome is very binary. Either it's Snapchat or Instagram, or you grind for a whole lot of time and like don't have much of an outcome, if any. That was the result for me. Um, four years of building the company, didn't have an outcome. Um, and on the tail end of that, recognized that I love building businesses. And that I wanted to do something um, with a business model that inspired me and where I could measure my own personal progress in revenue um, <laughs> that is being uh, generated by the company. With the social, mobile social media company, it's like these Fugazi make, made up like uh, vanity metrics <laughs> that you have to sell to somebody well in advance of having any real revenue. Um, and I wanted to flip to something that wasn't that. At the time, SaaS was just coming of age. And uh, there were two companies based out of the States that were, at the time, the fastest growing SaaS companies of all time. Uh, And they were called Gusto and Zenefits. Um, And at the time, nothing like those companies existed in Canada. 
they had this really like fantastic mission of being able to support um, employers, like the largest class of employers in their country. So in the, in Canada, also in the States, like 80, 85% of all the individuals who receive a paycheck receive one from an SMB. And obviously employing is a huge part of all of their business. I, I don't think I have to explain to anybody who's watching this. You know, it doesn't matter like how good your idea is and how fantastic the timing is as well. If you don't have good people and manage them well, you're just not going to have a good outcome. And the idea of building this magical black box that helps Canadian companies be great employers felt like an awesome mission to go on. Um, and one that lined up well with my ambitions to build a public company from scratch. Um, you know, at the time, it's, it's still the case. You have to be able to go zero to 100 million ish in revenue to be able to have to be a public company and and be able to like do the next set of things at that scale. And we're about halfway on our journey to getting there. Um, this is a, this was a little bit more than my origin stories. <laughs> to feel free to cut me off or ask questions or. No worries. I mean, I mean, I'm super excited to to get into talking about about Humi a little bit more. Um, I'll just dial back a bit, right? Like, I I think I guess one of the more underserved decisions that that you must have made was like dentistry is probably one of the most stable, I guess, incomes or or whatever you want to call it, right? Like, no matter what recession we're in, people still need to get their cavities fixed, right? So. So like going from that decision, like, was it easy for you to just jump into something that you're income zero and, and you're starting from scratch? Like, and, and for folks that may be listening to this, maybe public, maybe they're in school. Like, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, this podcast later, right? Like what with, without trying to be too cliche, but even through your own personal experience, like what's kind of that decision-making process? Like, what are you analyzing the pros and cons or, or like, how do you make those types of decisions? Hmm. Um, it was it was actually really easy, and I don't know if that like just says more about me than it does about the decision. Because you look at the economics, it probably was a stupid decision. <laughs> you know, to make three hundred plus for the last you know ten fifteen years, as opposed to just grinding it out. And in, in terms of like the decision matrix, I, I think that the key driver there was um, I always knew that the. Whatever I did, I wanted to be like very ambitious in in generally. And I knew that it wouldn't be possible unless I showed up every day and was willing to like really grind. And I didn't think that was possible unless I found something I really enjoyed doing. And dentistry is a it's interesting. Like I've trained, done a ton of training. I got to the point where like I actually enjoy doing the work, but as a craft showing up every day and making that like my sole focus and being like hyper nerdy about just dentistry was not the thing that was going to keep me engaged. And, and to the point where I'd build or do something like ambitious. Um, and I've always felt that way about building companies uh, or about like doing entrepreneurial stuff. And the more I learned about company building and like what's possible in terms of like impact, um, it's definitely flipped to like building companies for me. So it it was an easy decision, but probably um, easier than it it really should have been. <laughs> and and I want to go from that right because so you make this kind of huge life life change. Um, obviously, you invested in a dentistry degree. You might have upset your parents, like. I'm sure you weren't the most popular guy in the room when when you kind of announce all this stuff, right? And you kind of give it all up and you're going all in on this social network, right? And then obviously four years later, like a couple million users is nothing to scoff at, right? Like I think these are uh you you mentioned vanity metrics, but you know, a couple million and anything is, you know, something some some folks dream of, right? Um how do you go from from you know this this thing that you gave up your previous career for to your new dream to saying like admitting that this doesn't work i got to go back to the drawing board like what was that decision process like and and i think the main thing i want to pry out of this is how do you know when it isn't working because it's not like nobody used your app right yeah yeah it was really tough because you know i gave up a lot i sold a lot of people on the dream i took money from a lot of people um i asked people to take a chance on me and to like you know vouch for me in a lot of ways 
So it was really difficult to let people down. And um, I lost a lot of sleep for a long time. But I think there was something inside me that had, could see the writing on the wall. You know, it was a confluence of like where the network was at, our growth rate, the internal tell. Like there's a lot of signals that you that like that inform that gut in your understanding. And it took me a while to accept the truth. Um, and again, like, you know, it materializes in like stress and like waking up and like, you know, in like a pool of sweat <laughs> at night. It was really difficult. I, I think it was like a, if I had to say it was probably like a six month awakening to the reality of, you know, at the conclusion that I eventually came to that the company wasn't going to have an outcome and that it was better to sunset what was existing rather than trying to continue on. Hello, fellow tech startup founders. I just want to quickly interrupt this episode to tell you about us at launch. If you're looking for a community to help you take your business to the next level, consider joining our Launchpad program. As a member, you'll get access to investor connections, programming, workshops, mentorship, and over $400,000 worth of perks. Also, don't forget to check out our other podcasts, Launch AMA and Bits and Bytes, for expert advice and stories from the tech community in Vancouver and around the world. Visit launchacademy.ca to learn more and start building your dream business today. That's launchacademy.ca. Let me take a moment to shout out our longtime sponsor, Smythe. They are a leading independent BC-based accounting firm specializing in providing financial services and consulting for tech companies across North America. Smythe has supported our program and our alumni throughout their early growth stages by helping them structure and set up their businesses, all the way to helping more established businesses with cross-border operations and M&A. They combine industry knowledge with a proactive, collaborative approach, empowering you to make more informed decisions as your business grows. So if you're looking for a trusted partner to help you drive your business to success, reach out to one of our Launch Academy's longtime mentors, Camelia Ho, for more information about how Smythe can support your growth. You can find Camelia's information on Smythe's website at smythecpa.com. That's S-M-Y-T-H-E-C-P-A.com, along with more information about the various industries they support and the services they provide. Yeah, and I, and I know we're we're going through like super meaningful parts of your life in basically five ten minutes here. So, but I I did want to give that context before we kind of talk in and, and talk about you know how you built Humi. Like, what do you, what ex, what do you take from those kind of prior experiences that you experienced into like your new venture? Like, what what are the main learnings that you're like, hey, maybe I made that mistake or or I wasn't really passionate about X, so I didn't do that. Like. What are the main learnings that you pulled in when you first started Humi that you're like, I got to do this part different? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's just so many. I think the like sum total is that like it develops your gut. Um, not that that gut ever like I think ever stops developing if you keep prodding it and trying to progress it. I'll tell you that like my learnings like today versus when I started Humi. I'm like light years ahead in terms of like understanding how to like recruit and empower and hold people accountable and build a business generally. And I felt the same way in that step function between like when I first started the last company and started Hubie. I think like the only thing, like the thing I can say for sure is if you keep pushing and pushing to for progress, you will get it over time and you will see large gains. It's really difficult to see in like the short term. But like, you know, um, finding the right people and creating incentive structures that are very healthy, how to support people, um, how to pitch, you know, how to like understand the value that you are uh, creating, not only for customers, but also for like investors. And then, like, understanding financing and cost of capital. When I first started Humi, like, what I really knew about venture is that you did seed series A, series B, series C, and then you try to become public. Um, it was a very unthoughtful approach to financing the company. Uh, on that end, you know, being much more specific about the outcome that you want, uh, like the profile of the outcome you want, and working backwards from that that being a much healthier way to finance your company versus just looking at what everyone else is doing and doing that as well. Um, oh man, I mean, building product too. And 
what it takes to like maintain product velocity and the tax you pay as you scale a team. You know, there's like really meaningful trade-offs um, when it comes to being able to like make progress internally and maintain a certain like culture. Um, these are all like really important contributing factors. Um, you know, like I could go on and on and on. I think companies more so than like a hierarchy where you, know, you look at an org chart and it kind of looks like a huge puppet structure where there's like something at the top and it just holds all the other things down. And I think that's completely wrong. Um, I think it, companies should be much more likened to a, a like cell cell structure where you have multiple components. They all have interdependencies. There's a fluid that binds all the stuff around. There's a membrane on top and the whole thing grows or shrinks as a collective. And uh, being thoughtful about like each part of the cell is like really important. Um, but at the same time, like you can't cross over into like being too, you know, um, not giving people enough agency to be able to like grow their part of the thing. Uh, it's a weird back and forth. The the tension between I think like in every aspect of company building there's some tension that exists and it's not necessarily about finding like the right way to do something, but I think it's about finding the right tension for that thing that can, that helps it continue to progress at the rate that you need it to progress. So dentist school and biology did help with building businesses. Yeah, for sure. Listen, as much as I like look back at dental school as like four expensive years of wasted progress at times, there are a lot of like core skills that I think like it really helped progress, like attention to detail, ability to like really focus and work hard. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like fundamental skills that I didn't have. You know, coming out of undergrad, I wouldn't say I, I had nearly as, as much as I did out of dental school. Um, yeah. I mean that that's probably a whole different side topic we could probably spend an hour on. We'll we'll dodge that for now. But kind of talking about as you guys were starting, um, was it like instant growth for you guys? Where there feel like you felt like you had there were barriers that you had to break through? Like you mentioned some of some of the bigger players that were in the states at the time. Um, was it something like they already knew about those things? They're already using those things, and you had to kind of convert them to to using Humi. Um, what was that? Was there initial friction or was it, holy smokes, we're really growing really, really fast in, in ways we didn't expect? Like, how how did you kind of navigate those early waters um, into, to I don't want to say controlled growth, but at a rate that you guys are comfortable riding? Hmm. Yeah. So our product, our market is interesting. In the States, there's just a zillion SMBs. And so you can play in a much smaller pool and grow a lot faster. Uh, it doesn't. It's not quite the same for us. And as a company that needs to service slightly larger companies and a little bit more complex um, use cases. So in, when Gusto launched in the state, it was very simplistic payroll that didn't work for most companies, but worked for like one, two, three person companies. And when we launched in Canada, we need to be able to support companies that were like five through 50 person organizations to make the, our economics work. So the product actually had to be a little bit more in-depth. And the ask of a company in onboarding was a little bit more than being able to just like self-onboard onto a piece of software. Um, it, it was interesting. Very few companies had what we were offering, but it wasn't like completely seamless to come onto the product. Um, so just thinking back, like, you know, in our first month, it was just Matt and I and like, we would go into people's office with our laptop to onboard people directly <laughs> to the database as a means of like getting them you know, started on Humi. Um, I remember us doing this with Inkbox and Ada and a whole bunch of other companies like very early on. Um, but yeah, like, we never experienced the like absolute explosive growth um, that maybe some other companies have existed, but it, it's always been a a grind to make sure that like we're progressing at a rate that felt in line with what um, investors and growth expect expectations were. 
So for the first couple of years, we always like pointed towards at least two to three, you know, getting close to three uh, X our top line growth. And as we've gone farther, it's it's got it's come down closer to two X per year. Um, and it's always felt really hard. Uh, I don't remember, you know, thinking back on the last this last year of growth feels difficult. And like I can't remember the year one feeling that much different. Um, <laughs> it just felt more hands-on. Yeah. And and I think you touched on it a little bit, but um talking just about sales structure and things like that. But one of the advantages to being earlier stage or even ideation is just the speed that you can move at, right? Like you can literally change the 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 problem you're solving on a whim when you're really, really early. Um, but that's different as you grow. Um, so how did you and you, and maybe your leadership team like handle that um as you grow to make sure that you're you're lean to use use like a like a token term but but just to make sure that you're not becoming more struck too structured or too corporate or too slow in terms of making decisions or or pivoting or things like that yeah um so we've fallen off on both sides of this over the course of the last six seven years earlier early on it was a little bit too move fast without processes and as you bring in more people you see more and more people raise their hands and say hey like pro like i didn't even know we launched this product <laughs> hey like when did this change get made um it flipped from like me and matt going into somebody's office hearing it like feedback and him building the thing the next day we needed to progress to proper like roadmap planning and you know scope it like and so at the at a like earlier point in time, we fall on that side. And then I would say the opposite happened a couple of years ago where you know we raised our last round of funding and we overstaffed and we're not very thoughtful about the culture and how it would affect the output and got a little bit too deep into like terminology and thinking about the way we build, not just talking to customers and building and how to scale back on our the process and formalities around um, product in our organization. Um, and, uh, you know, back to like tension, healthy tension. <laughs> it feels like we're in a healthy place where the pendulum is swung one way and then swung the other. And we can see where that like interesting middle is where we have like proper processes that help glue like the entire company together, but not too much that it would slow us down or create barriers to like success anybody's success got it cool and then i mean like on that note like when you are kind of approaching those boundaries where you're like i'm too far one where i'm too far other like how is your setup in terms of people you take advice from or people your leadership te team takes advice from like how are you recognizing like hey we're in trouble we got to change something um, is that like a board of board of advisors? Is it just the leadership team? Like, where does it come from? Oh yeah, um, it comes from the employee base and the leadership team. And I think this like really underscores the importance of uh, like continuous listening and being connected at some level throughout the company. You know, I continue to like go for a while. You know, uh, it's important to build relationships with direct reports. I think as somebody who's like leading a company, it's important to like be accessible and to hear people from across the organization. I mean, I say this for 140 people who the hell knows once you're a thousand, like what's actually possible. But um, in times where like adjustments need to be made, you can hear it from people. You can hear it from their direct feedback. Sometimes it's less direct and it comes out in like a form of stress or anxiety around certain things. Um, People will tell you if you listen and ask and are and are open to you know uh to hearing this stuff. Yeah. And how are you analyzing like, you know, you're taking all this feedback in, right? But I'm I'm guessing sometimes the answer is gonna be yes, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's gonna be let's dive into this more, or sometimes it might just be like, no, I don't think that's the direction we'll go in, right? Um, and so how how I guess are you communicating that so that the lines of communication between you and your your team members are still open, but having an understanding that hey I am listening, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be reactive to to everything that that I'm getting in. Um, I think communication and 
people understanding context and intent is a really important thing here. Because when people hear decisions in a vacuum, it can be interpreted in like a zillion different ways. But when you've spent time to like help people understand the context and you build trust with people, and then they understand it at a different level and there's way less risk. And we've seen this in like times where we've had to announce difficult things within the company. When we're very like, keep everything quiet and announce everything to a company, it causes way more pain and um, anxiety for people than if we communicate the difficult thing with the leadership group and that leadership group can have conversations with their direct reports and throughout the company. Um, because a lot of the trust that's built in our working relationships happens between direct reports and the like person who's leading them. Uh, and so I think building that like trust network so that when you deliver the, the message, people understand where you're headed towards and like, if you're a good dude or a piece of shit or, you know, like people get a gut for trusting the information and like, and, and it, it impacts how people interpret and react to it. Um, and I don't think there's an easy solve for doing that other than just spending a ton of time within your business and building trust over a long period of time. Terrific. And so along those same lines, all tug of traderlines.com is asking, how do you manage the growth of the company along with the key staff? such as less experienced staff who are growing into higher responsibility positions, or do you hire someone to help manage that growth? What's kind of like the, the I guess, employee progression plan? Yeah. Um, I think it's very ad hoc based on resources, resource constraints, you know, your own personal uh, network and ability to recruit people into the company. Um, you know, somebody who can raise like $40 million for an idea and has a network of like high-end executives can be something going to be very different than um, somebody who is like building their first startup. And, you know, if you're on the less experienced side, you have to lean into selling the dream and the value of equity and trying to like align incentives in such a way that, that you know, the person you're selling is, is going to believe that you know, they're going to accrue a ton of benefits and um, it's difficult as you scale, you're going to need, you know, more people um, can potentially be more leveraged. And I think you have to be very thoughtful about what the right type of person is at the right time. Um, you know, just speaking. So like when I think about our executive team today, um, I, I'm currently the only person in, in the C-level leadership. Everyone else is a VP. Uh, you know, we're not Stripe or Airbnb, but we have the ambitions to do something big on that scale. Uh, we also aren't like ridiculously overcapitalized. It's not like we have $500 million in the bank. And so I'm like heavily, I'm very heavily invested on the VPs on our team and want to like have dedicated like... I have an intention to help them progress into C-level because it's the healthiest thing for our company. And it's the way I want to win and build the company um, like to being at scale. And this should be different for everyone based on their circumstance, probably also based on uh, the um, like vertical you plan. I'm sure like a B2B SaaS company, it's very different than a biotech company or a Web3 company or, you know, like a nuclear power uh, startup. Um, so, so I think mm -hmm. it's very, being very thoughtful about what point in your company, um, like timeline you're at, how much leverage um, and like resources you have and um, the type of like thing you want to end up in. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult problem to solve over time. and. I don't think like anybody gets it right. Um, I think you can just hope to like survive long enough to learn enough to get better at it. Because even the best companies tend to fail with like 50% of their executive hires, which is a wild number. Like every one of those executive hires is incredibly expensive. They take six months to recruit. They're normally like, there can be large like uh, recruitment fees associated with them. You have to then scale them up in your org. And then to not have a person like that you know, not work out, 
And then knowing that like some of the best com- this happens to some of the best companies in the world with like, unlimited resources um, makes you feel better about taking swings and it not working out. But you know, it, all this to say, it, it's a very difficult difficult problem and something that you just get better with over time as your gut, you know, continues to Im- improve and um, be developed. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like positioning and things like that, because because I like. I think it's kind of surprising to to hear that you know you're the only C-suite executive, and and to some point it, it's it's labeling, right? But but oh, we also cool. have yeah, cool. we also have startups that have like five C-suite founders and no employees. <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. Listen, you need cash flow like ten million bucks a year and not need any, you know, like that's so. It's a weird game, the title game. Honestly, I hate it. Uh, I understand the value of it for employees outwardly facing internally like i you know the thing that matters is your responsibility not title and title doesn't necessarily correlate with responsibility it feels like more of an outside signal than it is a thing that like really delivers value internally so you know like i don't formally have a coo there's definitely somebody internally like who's doing a lot of the coo work (laughs) same for like our you know uh like uh, engineering work and product and you know our customer support team and and head of people mm-hmm. well, especially because because you're in the the work industry right like what do you think it is that attracted key talent to to kind of join your team maybe early on maybe now like what like object or try to be as objective as you can obviously you can't be fully objective like what what's attract like what kind of culture have you tried to create that's like saying like, hey, Sam wants to work with you? Um, I think there's there's a couple of things. I think people are attracted to the culture that exists here. Um, there's a lot of like ambitious, but also like good. All these weird, sorry, I put these weird emoji things. I don't know how to do it. A lot of hardworking, ambitious, but also like not assholes you know, like generally good, like laid back people who work here, um, which uh, I think is a very attractive workplace for a lot of people. Uh, and I think also the um, the potential of the story and like going along for the adventure, building something ambitious and impactful and having and being a part of a success story that has a lot of weight um, with the people you know. So you join a lot of tech or SaaS companies and like people like don't really know who they are. Like you joined ClearBank, they got really big, really quick. If you weren't in tech, you know, most people in Canada just have no context. It doesn't matter. With Humi, we've got like 3000 plus Canadian businesses. And a lot of these are the logos that we like know and see in our neighborhoods. Tim Hortons, Boston Pizza, um, which we call like Steam Muscle Brewery, uh, Ace Hill. I could go on, and like it's really cool for the customer segment um, and the people you support to be the people who live in your communities. Um, it's also, you know, it also allows us to do a lot of like interesting stuff in Toronto uh, that's recognized, and I, I think there's a value to that for people and doing the thing that like makes them feel good about like helping people that they know. As opposed to a, another software company where the benefit might accrue to somebody in a company somewhere in the States or in Ireland or Europe or whatnot. And the Vancouver Canucks, which is now a cool thing to say as of this season. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's such a cool... I'm a huge hockey fan, uh, fan growing up. Uh, we sponsored the Vancouver Canucks this year. We've like gotten to the scale where we can make an investment like that and not have it be... you know. It's important, for, like this is the first like large brand investment we've made. So it was important that it was actually um, uh, looked like an experiment because we honestly didn't know what the uh, outcome would be. And um, you know we're on the boards. Uh, we have like logo rights. Uh, we've done a whole bunch of like community activation events with them. Um, you know, selfishly, like it's a hang out around the rink a little bit <laughs> <laughs> but surely you must have grown up a Leafs fan right for sure and like yeah would have loved to sponsor the Leafs absolutely um you know it, it was interesting that Canucks have a, a new chief revenue officer who had 
being in Pittsburgh for the last seven years and had a ton of uh, success in growing alongside burgeoning uh, software tech startups in and around Pittsburgh. And he's kind of singled us out and a couple others as ones he'd like to do the same with. And um, it, it's interesting. The first time they reached out for sponsorship or for partnership, the response was like, is this a joke or is this, you know, like, <laughs> yes, I didn't get this email and like, this is a very good fake. Is this actually real? Uh, but it, it's been cool to, and I think this is part of like, if you continue at it and you can like continue to compound value, like you get to do more and more interesting things um, as you go along. Yeah. For sure. And and I think like what's really interesting about how you guys have grown is is from my perspective anyway, it seems like you're hyper focused on the Canadian S and B market. Um other startups, maybe definitely companies at your size, like expansion to other markets may be like the main focus by now or for now. Um for yourselves, like what was what was kind of the decision making like on on concentrating on growing that Canadian piece? Like you mentioned something like three thousand businesses or something in Canada alone. I don't know how that compares to the the rest of the business, but definitely like you guys have decided to make some focus on on domestic um, business partners. Yeah. Um, so so how does the, how does that how does that what was that process like? Absolutely. So it's been you know for every year that we've had a head of sales, we've had a discussion around like can we go to the states? There's just a whole lot more leads down there. <laughs> and the truth is that um, when I think about our first hundred million in revenue and the path I want to sign up for that is like, um, has a high likelihood of like becoming a reality, but one that I would enjoy traversing. And it seemed like the, like the logical focusing on Canada seems like the logical choice. You know, there are 10 million SMBs in the States, but there are six or seven, uh, well-funded, fairly large, uh, startups that are now like incumbents down there. There are 1,500 payroll providers in the US. There are nine in Canada. And even though the the market is much smaller, um, when you look at a lot of the financial products that our um, product just naturally touches on, so payroll, the movement of money, health benefits, um, registered retirement, you know, group RSPs, those products make up the bulk of revenue for some of the biggest companies in our country. Um, and so the thinking was that going very deep in Canada, building a very like thoughtful product for community employers allows us to own more and more of the value chain for those products over time. And um, I mean, that's a more complex way of saying in Canada with between 10 and 15,000 businesses, we can support a million people, and that's about a hundred million in revenue. Uh, and it's a very um, believable story, you know. As entrepreneurs, as we go out and pitch for employees or for investment or for revenue, customers and revenue, in a lot of ways, you have to sell the longer term version and the story. And some of it should be aspirational, but uh, it should also be very believable. And the idea that we can get to between 10 and 15,000 businesses out of the, you know, there's a million SMBs in Canada. They're like le- a little less than half of those are in our target market. So about a little under 400,000. And, um, you know, if you can't have conviction in us getting to 50, 10 to 15,000 customers within those 400,000, then you really shouldn't sign up for joining the mission, building the company, being an investor, in it, you know, and creating this kind of, um, uh, like breakpoint in people's minds is a good forcing function for getting them to like have conviction in the business or not. And I think when it's very logical, it, it becomes much easier to buy in and be a part of. For sure, and and you've touched on fundraising a couple of times. Like like if if anybody was listening, this has done some research on Hume and Kevin. Like they they did raise a Series B, I think it was last May for thirty one million. Um, but just in general, like how has fundraising been impactful to to Humi's journey? And like I, I know we talked offline about, you know, your thesis on on whether companies need funding, when to go for it, how much, et cetera. But but for 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 Humi's story, like how what's been the major impact for for you guys? 
Um, it's been massively impactful. We've had to invest a good amount upfront to build the product and um, be cash losing in, in order to like gain the market share that we've gained the last couple of years. I will say there's definitely a trade-off. Um, with more money, you use it less responsibly and less effectively. And so I always like, especially in the last couple of years, I've become friendly with a lot of um, more so bootstrapped, more capital efficient companies that had gotten big, but had just been a little bit more patient. Intellex, Point Click Care. There's some incredible um, stories in the Canadian ecosystem of really big companies that took very little capital. And the outcomes are way better for the founders, for the employees who work within them. And I think they're much healthier companies. You know, like all the attention tends to get garnered on the big fundraises. You know, well, simple build a huge company. Founders own nothing. Employees own nothing. You know, point click care, cash flow is hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Owner, like the founder owns 90% of that cash flow or some like absurd amount. At the end of the day, like we should really, I think, be pushing the stories where, um, you know, you're, they're very disciplined and much more patient. And as a result, ended up with much more valuable um, assets. Um, not to like, <laughs> you know, shit on venture financing too much. Like the reason we exist in our act, when we're at is, is VC financing. I wish I'd been more thoughtful in doing work back from where I wanted to get to, to thinking about capital and, and thinking more so about the cost of that capital and how to limit, like, you know, especially early on, the amount of dilution I'd taken. Bootstrap businesses, I mean, not bootstrap, but people who can grind it out longer to wait in or to like get to very high leverage financings. Those are the things I think are the like, those are the, those are the um, case studies that I really am uh, inspired by. Uh, you know, there are a couple of companies in the states where, like, they're like Series C, Series D, and they raise hundreds of millions, and they're like a billion dollar company. And the board is the three founders and an independent one outside investor. When you're taking VC capital, that is like a true success story. And sometimes it comes from having a massive amount of leverage, having like a successful company and you know doing it again or having a great network and sometimes it just comes from being like super patient and instead of needing to raise a seed within like 12 months grinding it out for a couple of years to a certain revenue milestone or more uh, and only taking capital when you can dictate the terms when you can minimize dilution um, and really can be in control of the ownership and, and making sure you're maintaining it long term so mm -hmm. I'm rambling now but very impactful, but like I, I wish I had been more considerate early days of raising capital. So I think I don't want to speak behalf of of every entrepreneur, but I think especially within this kind of financial landscape, patience is expensive. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is is like I think the the grind, especially when the price of everything else is going up, except you know the number in your bank accounts. What I guess encouragement or or like how would you navigate if you were starting like Humi now, knowing what you know now, right? Knowing that you maybe you could have been more patient. Um, um, but at the same time, you're like, well, if if I don't raise now, like there won't be something for me to enjoy to have be patient for later, right? Like it's it's that kind of complicated decision making matrix. Um like how, what kind of advice would you kind of give yourself now? And especially with, with the current financial landscape? Uh, I mean, I know it's a, it's a tough question. Yeah. It's a tough question because like <laughs> now the landscape looks very different. Acquisition costs looks different. Mm -hmm. Opportunity looks different. <laughs> if I was starting Humi today, a different Humi that had the same like opportunity profile I would encourage myself to build for as long as I could and to, to, to build the like customer base and the revenue to as like high as I possibly believed I could make it before looking for outside funding for the company. And I would look at using equity as a strong lever for bringing in other employees. And I would 
try and be like extremely frugal and like very like grinded out um crafty when it comes to like acquisition and finding the like you know and doing the stuff that doesn't scale to get to a place of higher leverage um say so it, it's such a tough question you know this is assuming mm. i had no prior success i was like a first time founder i had no money in the bank you know right. i had like cash in the bank i would say like fund it yourself you know if you're building this as a you know if you believe that you're building a like huge business in that that's going to exist in the future there's nothing more expensive than giving up and then like selling equity at the very like early stages of it and the more you can embody that like the more other people will believe it and the more that has a likelihood of coming true. It's just, it's, it's really difficult to know the trade-off. Um, also people's situations. Some people just can't go without a paycheck. Um, you know, if you have two kids and a mortgage, you probably need a baseline, like <laughs> take home. Uh, if you're, you know, sharing an apartment with four other people and it, like, willing to like eat ramen noodles every day different calculus um but i know that like everything every like last dollar you can pump into like what that business is and the more ownership you can retain i'm so sure that like the better your outcome is likely to be for sure for sure you just you just triggered something i just remembered ramen noodles are 5.99 at the office next to yale's town oh my god <laughs> I guess you can't eat anything not nothing Nothing to do with anything, but I couldn't get that out of my head without saying it. Yeah. Um, awesome. Not in uh, Yelltown, I guess. Is the <laughs> yeah, I think Yelltown is a problem. Um, along those notes, though, like obviously you did mention, like fundraising has been impactful for for you. Can you share some of the insights, like when you were when you were raising, like because I I, I know you did a lot of background work, like the types of investors you you would have targeted or or mm-hmm. not. And, and like, you know, I, I don't know if you're raising or not now. And if you're, if you want to divulge that, but like when you're not raising around, like, what are you doing with either potential investors who said like, call me back or, or maybe on the next round? Like, what are you doing to, to kind of nurture those relationships now? Yeah. Um, so we are not fundraising now. We're actually headed towards being cash flow positive. Congratulations. Uh, next year, which is awesome. Thank you. Um, between, so back to the idea of the more leverage you have, the better a financing is likely to be. And I tried as much as I could to build leverage through relationship building between fundraisers. So I would make it a point, um, a lot of our like important perspective investors were New York or San Francisco to go down there periodically and have coffees and show up at events. Um, and build trusts with people or like networks that were impactful to being able to drive fundraises. Um, we were lucky enough to be, be a part of Y Combinator in the early days of our company. And they have a lot of like interesting network things that we can leverage to build that trust. Um, and just keeping in touch with people, you know, you also want to understand the story that needs to be told in order to get the next set up. Sorry, you got a, Bit of a cold two year that season. That season. Um, you know, also building the story and the thesis at the same time. These periodic check, you know, like up updates and check-ins with investors over time also created um opportunity to get feedback on the story and where you're headed and their expectations and what they're looking for. And um, a, a lot of these little bits help towards the next fundraise to inform, you know, the pitch, the pitch and the ask and the deployment of capital. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say like always being cognizant of it and understanding the tax that it, it has on your, like on the company and your time. Because remember, like this is important, but also important is building your business. So when you talk about like what's you know what's important, building the trust towards like having an opportunity to raise, versus like building you know the business and the customer set. Obviously, the business and the customer set, yes, and probably first and foremost, but the other stuff, yes, as well. Um, and I find you you find a lot of situations where it's like 
pick one or the other and you're like need to do both shit <laughs> this is one of the real challenge uh, the like never-ending challenges of i think building a company and being entrepreneurial is that you're often um either asked or asking other people to do two things at the same time that seem to be in conflict yeah yeah and i and i, and I want to hone in on that because i think you you touched on something really important that i think almost every entrepreneur struggles with right and you you talked about about leveraging relationships right and we're talking and in your scenario you talked about going to new york or san francisco that's a that's a lot of trips like that might have been like personally funded or company funded i, I have no idea i don't think that's really important um but but more more so the the time spent personal and like eventually became right right but i, I think what i'm trying to get at is is like the time spend the effort spend like especially when you're in early build mode all you're thinking about is like, okay, how do I get this product? How do I get that next feature? How do I get that next customer? Like that's that's your I'm on I'm at work brain, but you're actively pulling yourself away from that to to go have coffee with A or B or C, right? Um, in a very practical sense, like like what does what does leveraging your relationships look like? It can be a real example or fake. I don't want to go too deep into your personal life, but it's just like for 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 folks that are listening, I want to make it really crystal clear. Like this is what it looks like. So I think inherently it should be the same, whether it's an investor or an employee. Uh, it should be some form of trust building. So like the better you can like build relationship without some like transactional on the table or without it like feeling transactional, the more genuine it can be. Um, and just doing like oftentimes the simplest stuff, like just doing thoughtful, nice things for people. Uh, you know, in conversation, did you hear them mention something that you could help, you know, like you had a suggested solution to, or somebody you could introduce them to that might help them out. Trying to provide value without asking for stuff in return is a great way uh, to build trust and to build, you know, like ultimately that trust gives you leverage. But, um, you know, when I say leverage, it's not like, yeah, catch them with like photos of them cheating and like, you know, or, you know, doing illegal shit. And so now you have leverage over them. It's like build the trust and ability to like move quicker with somebody um, and build their faith in you that you are, you know, a capable entrepreneur and that you're going to build something that's impactful that will drive the return that they're looking for. And people who are investors are looking to deploy capital, but it's really difficult for them like the hardest thing I think is building conviction in the entrepreneur. And um, the more you can help them do that through building trust and hanging out through coffees and whatnot, um, the more leverage you have for, for fundraising. Sure. And, and, and I think that's a really good segue and I'll, I'll probably end off here, but like you're, you're a super busy guy. You're, you, you got a staff of 140 people. You have investors to keep up to date coffee dates to to meet like why was it so important or that that you're still engaging with incubators like us frankly speaking or or and obviously we're not the only one like i saw some announcements about you know you would be involved in the toronto tech community as well different things like that why why are you carving out this time specifically uh, yeah so this is a fantastic question uh and i think this goes back to the reason i left dentistry I wanted to spend time doing stuff I was passionate about. So in confluence with building Cumi, I've always loved the early stage stuff and supporting other um, founders and, and builders at the earliest stages. And I've always carved that out. You know, I've done like a whole bunch of tiny little angel investments and done a bunch of like advisory work. That stuff I, makes me feel great. We're at the scale as a company um, where um so actually for uh next year uh accelerators being able to support accelerators and incubators are actually a meaningful distribution channel for us so it allows me to spend a ton of my time uh doing things like this and spending time with people and companies within the programs themselves and um it's this awesome match of like the things i love to do with the things i like need to do to move the business forward and um it's interesting because our our product has evolved over time and our the distribution channels and the like allocation of where I spend my time 
this next year is the first time it really makes a ton of sense for me to be able to allocate meaningful time of my like human company building time in places like this. Um, so like for me personally, it's very exciting because this is a fun conversation. I'm sure there's like how many people in the chat here? 20 or so. I'm sure everybody's like-minded. We would have like a fun beer or coffee together. And uh, it just pumps me up to think that I can spend meaningful time here over the course of the next year. That's that's amazing. That, that, that's precursor for all members that are listening in. Like this is not the last you've seen of Humi. We'll we'll be definitely involved with other things in the new year. Um for startups specifically, because that is that is our primary audience here. Want to give Humi a chance to plug your uh, plug yourself? Like, how how can they leverage it? How can they use it? Uh, hundred percent. So, the the hope is that we're a magical black. You know, the same way Shopify, it's this magical black box. It makes any company a really good merchant. We want to be that for Canadian companies employing people. So, um, I don't know if you're one or two people or you're four or five ambitious to scale if you need payroll uh hr health benefits um what we've now spun up is an accelerator incubator program so being a part of launch gives you access to all that for free we can't give you health benefits for free you still have to buy that (laughs) from a carrier but we can facilitate that but help you run your payroll and manage all the people in your company um Completely for free, which is really awesome. So if you want to take advantage of the deal, here's my plug. Um, do we even have a landing page spun up? I think it's in we, we don't. This is this is breaking news for for even my team that's listening in and they're going, What? Yeah, yeah. So maybe like but, but it is coming. Um yeah. We'll find a way everyone can ping me. We'll do it at we're gonna do the things that don't scale to start here. Hit me up directly. Uh <laughs> Um, but yeah, this, uh, I'm sure you run payroll. Uh, I imagine there's some ambitions to hire people and to manage them over time. Uh, and we want to help support that. We want to like take a whole bunch of bullshit off your plate so that you spend more time focused on building your company. And when it comes time to raise and an investor is asking for a whole bunch of due diligence things, the other kind of un, um, uh, benefit of Humi that I haven't really, we haven't really promoted is it has all of your stuff well organized in a very like accessible place. And when it comes to like selling your business or fundraising, any sort of due diligence with a bank, all this stuff is going to be necessary and probably provide a lot of value when you least expect it. That's amazing. So, so in short, if you work with other people, you probably have a use for Humi. <laughs> um, if you don't, like, let's come hang out and we'll figure out how to get to the point where that is true. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And, and I guess that's the last question is just how can people connect with you? Are there specific topics you'd prefer to chat about? Um, what are your socials? All that kind of stuff. Uh, on Twitter. Twitter is like the social thing. Uh, believe I'm going to be in the launch mentor uh network yep. so however um people facilitate um yep there uh, i don't think so he'll be in slack shortly probably after the new year yep um so ping me there or hit me up directly through email um either way it's, it's all good for sure and so just just for launch members that are listening to this for the first time um we're going to do a couple office hours with kevin probably set up in the new year um, if you want to have like a sit down zoom call chat with him, he, he is based in Toronto for those that don't know. So, so wherever you are in the world, like we can set that up, um, hit me up, um, and just talk him, Hey, I want to have a chat with Kevin about a, B or C, just be as specific as you can about what you're looking to get help with. Um, and we'll try and facilitate that, um, our way. So, so we'll give further instructions. I think Samson will give the instructions in, in our announcements in our Slack. Um, but we're looking to get that set up for you, um, so that you can have some meaningful conversations. Thank you so much, Kevin. Really appreciate this time. Uh, you fighting the cold too. I had a lot of fun. Hopefully, it was all right for you. Um, but we'll be we'll be back. I think I think next year. It's it's really weird how how December just comes and goes. Um, but really appreciate you, and and you're definitely not the last time we'll chat. Awesome. I look forward to it. And uh, thanks everyone f- uh, for joining. Hope to meet at some point. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you again soon. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Launch AMA, a podcast that's part of the Launch Academy network of podcasts. If you liked what you heard, give us a follow on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to our YouTube channel at Launch Academy HQ. You might also like our other podcasts, Bits and Bytes and Founder Journey. This episode was hosted by Sam Chan and produced by Samson Lee. Learn more about what we do here at Launch Academy by going to launchacademy.ca. Consider joining our Launchpad program by going to launchacademy.ca slash launchpad. That's launchacademy.ca slash launchpad.